Arnold is going to read our scripture. Uh. And to the angel of the church at Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her into the sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into the great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you as your works deserve, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you take a hymnal at this time and turn to number 405, hymn number 405, Have Faith in God, and would you please join us in standing as we worship together. Have faith in God when your pathway is lonely. He sees and knows all the ways you have trod. Never alone are the least of his children. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. He is on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God when your prayers are unanswered. Your earnest plea he will never forget. Wait on the Lord. Trust his word and be patient. Have faith in God. He'll answer yet. Have faith in God. He is on his throne, have faith in God, he watches o'er his own, he cannot fail, he must prevail, have faith in God, have faith in God, have faith in God, in your pain and your sorrow, his heart is touched with your grief and despair. Cast all your cares and your burdens upon him, and leave them there, oh, leave them there. Have faith in God, 
He is on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith in God, though all else fail about you. Have faith in God. He provides for his own. He can God. He's on his throne. Have faith in God. He watches o'er his own. He cannot fail. He must prevail. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. You may be seated. If you have your Bible, I want to turn with me to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, we've come to verse 21 this morning, and I'll be reading through verse 31. Romans chapter 3. And verse 21. And there the Bible says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that no one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law, the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we come this morning mindful of the fact that you are God and we are not. We are creatures and you are the creator. And we have come this morning to worship you in spirit and in truth. We've come to worship you because you are the maker of all things. Because you know all things. Because you have all power. Because you are unchangeable in all of your attributes. Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us. We thank you for the privilege of being gathered in this place this morning that we might look into your word. And Father, we pray that you will give us wisdom as we look into your word that it will become that which keeps us from sinning against you. 
We pray this morning that as your word goes out, that it will accomplish that which you have sent it, as you have promised in it. We ask, Lord, that everything that is said and done and thought in this time might be pleasing to you and bring honor and glory to Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Number 412, my faith has found a resting place. My faith has found a resting place, not in device nor creed. I'll trust the ever-living one, his wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves, this is my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him, he'll never cast me out. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My heart is leaning on the word, the living word of God. Salvation by my Savior's name, salvation through his blood. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. My great physician heals the sick, the lost he came to save. For me his precious blood he shed, for me his life he gave. I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. If you have your Bible, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 3. The first time that I attended the Southern Baptist Convention was in Atlanta, Georgia in 1978. My second one was in Houston, Texas in 1979. And the place exploded. Uh, it became what came to be known as the conservative resurgence. But it began in Houston in 79. It had been going on for some time. The Southern Baptist Convention, like many mainline denominations in the United States, had drifted more and more and more towards the left. And a group of people uh set out to bring it back to its biblical roots. One of the, one of the primary movers uh, in the conservative resurgence was a man by the name of W.A. Criswell, who was the longtime pastor of First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. 
The night after the pastor's conference in Houston, the Houston Chronicle referred to Dr. Criswell as the white-maned patriarch of the conservative legions. I always wanted to be known as a white-maned patriarch. That gray-haired fat guy up on Teleco Avenue is the closest I've gotten, and it really doesn't have the same ring to it. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, as the, as the conservative movement gathered steam, Dr. Criswell was frequently a key player. In 1985, before the largest Southern Baptist convention that has ever met, 45,000 messengers, he preached a stemwinder of a sermon. Had some people just frothing at the mouth. I won't mention names. So anyway, we, we came along. Business meetings got longer and longer. Votes got more and more crucial. So we come up to 1988. In 1988, my oldest son was 10 years old. And I'd promised the boys that when they got to be 10, I would take them with me to the Southern Baptist Convention. And so David was 10 that year. Uh, he'd been following things even as a 10-year-old, and he was excited. So on Sunday night, when Dr. Criswell ascended the podium, he said to the assembled crowd, Ladies and gentlemen, may I speak to you tonight about the curse of liberalism? And David looked at me and said, All right, Daddy, we've come to the good stuff now. Well, I want to tell you, in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, we have come to the good stuff now. Now is the good stuff. For a number of verses, from chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, the news has gotten grimmer and grimmer and grimmer. And Paul has painted a picture of mankind totally alienated from God. Man apart from God, and there has come a recognition that sin completely permeates the human race, and that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's none that seeks after God. We now come to verse 21, and this section of Romans gives the solution to the problem of sin and contains the normative passage on the great Protestant doctrine of justification by faith alone. Concerning the last two verses of this first section we're going to look at, uh, a man by the name of Frederick Godet once said, it is not without reason that these two verses have been called the marrow of biblical theology. The great Reformation theologian John Calvin declared, there is probably not in the whole Bible a passage which sets forth more profoundly the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And yet the statement is so short, it, it seems barely to have begun, when in a few lines he said basically all that he's going to say, and, and just elaborates on it after that. It is a brief summary of divine wisdom. In my opinion, this passage of Scripture is one of the most crucial and important passages in all of the Bible. He begins by giving the manifestation of justification in verse 21 through 
23. In the opening verse, you can, you can almost hear a sigh of relief. After all that he has said, Paul now says, but now. He has talked about man's efforts to achieve righteousness on his own. And now, here comes God's words of relief. Here is God's answer to man's total failure. But now marks the turn in the argument. The righteousness of God that he promised that was revealed in the gospel back in chapter 17 of verse 1 is now manifested. In his commentary on Romans, Martin Luther, uh, in dealing with man's sin and hopelessness, referred to Horace's rule of dramatic art. Horace was a literary critic and playwright of the first century. But Horace said that a god must not be introduced into the action until the plot has gotten into such a tangle that only a god could unravel it. That's where we've come in the book of Romans chapter 3. The righteousness of God is said to be apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Righteousness is not gained by legal effort. It is not gained by the work of the law. It is not contrary to the law, for the law never taught that man could achieve righteousness by good works. Instead, the law, by its demands, brought a knowledge of sin. Man could not achieve righteousness. That's what the law says. The law is designed to show us that we are sinners, that we can never attain to the righteousness of God. All of the Old Testament uh, witness to the righteousness that is apart from legal work. Sometimes people say, uh, well, you know, in the Old Testament, they're saved by, by works. No, they weren't. No one's ever been saved by works, ever. The, the righteousness of the Old Testament is clear. It's taught that, that righteousness rests upon a Redeemer whose merits we may appropriate by faith. Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, Psalm 32, 1, uh, Isaiah 8, 14, Isaiah 28, 16, Isaiah 59, 20, Habakkuk 2, 4. And all of those texts are used by Paul in the book of Romans. What the Old Testament sacrifices did by a kind of Pavlovian conditioned reflex was to impress on the minds of Israel that God was to be approached only on the ground of sacrifice. Those thousands, millions of animals that were slain on Jewish altars said over and over and over and over, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. There has to be a sacrifice. There has to be blood that is shed for sin to be dealt with. Uh, in verse 22 here, Paul gives the rationale for justification. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. He's going to give further explanation, but... It is a righteousness, he's talking about a righteousness that is given by the instrumentality of faith. 
And it's given in Jesus Christ to all believers. Because there is no difference in the sinful state of people. There is no difference. That's what he's going to say next. The reason for justification. Why does God plan salvation this way? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Some commentators say that's referring back to sin and Adam, and certainly that would be true. But the vast majority here say that this is a reference to personal sins that are suggested by the context from 118 to 320. The Greek verb that is translated fall short is in the present tense and refers to the present situation. Right now, we are falling short of the glory of God. All men are continually falling short of the glory of God. Now notice, Paul does not say that all men come equally short of the glory of God. But the glory of God means perfection. The glory of God means keeping the law of God perfectly. So to come short by an inch is just as fatal as to come short by a mile. Let's suppose that uh, we decide we're going to jump the Tennessee River. And so we go over to the Washington Ferry Bridge where Highway 30 crosses the Tennessee River. And since I'm the pastor and a leader of men, I go first. And so I back up about 35 or 40 feet and take off on a dead waddle down to the edge of the water. But I can't run more than 20 feet, so basically I just fall face down in the mud. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm about two feet out. That, that, that's about all I can do, you know. So now, Brother Jim Roberts is going to be next. Well, Jim's younger than me, and he is long and tall. And so he takes off running, and he jumps out there about 14 feet and sinks like a rock. So now our third jumper is Jeff Henderson. Jeff Henderson won the gold medal in the 2016 Olympics in the long jump. He jumped an astounding 5.85 meters. And for those of you who are metrically challenged as I am, I googled it, it's a little over 28 feet. But Henderson has the best jump he's ever had in his life, and he jumps out there 35 feet. The only problem is the Tennessee River at the Washington Ferry Bridge is approximately 1,500 feet across. So the moral of the story is every one of us is wet. None of us have jumped it. None of us have attained to the goal that we set out to do. So men do not come equally short. Some jump two feet, some jump 14, some jump 35, but they're all wet. They have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. In the light of God's standard, religion, culture, education, good works, sacraments, ordinances, cannot save. Man is lost. His mouth is silenced before the demands of a just and holy sovereign. Paul's necessary 
an inevitable note concerning man's state is that he is a sinner, that he is under divine judgment, and that his fate is death. The manner of justification is given to us in verse 24. Two words that are very important that we're going to talk about later. You, you didn't think we was going to cover all this in just one sermon. No, no, we're going to come back and deal with it in more detail. But the two words we need to see uh, are to justify. That must be taken in the legal or forensic sense. It means to declare righteous by virtue of the imputation of the merits of the crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. When the Bible talks about justification, it is a legal declaration by virtue of the fact that God imputes the righteousness of Christ to us and imputes all of our sin to Him. That, that's why Top Lady said, Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Yeah. Justification is a legal declaration that is done by God based on the work of Jesus Christ. And the word propitiation that we'll be looking at in more detail later can be loosely paraphrased as satisfaction. Or as the NIV translates it, a sacrifice of atonement. It is a reference to the mercy seat. It is a reference to the fact that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ has satisfied the holiness of God and the wrath of God that is against all who have sinned, and that's everybody, remember, has been satisfied by the work of Christ. The, the, the apostle speaks of the manner or the principle of justification uh, by the use of, of the adverb that the ESV translates as a gift. It is translated in John 15 by the phrase without reason. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 8 as without pain. The word underscores the grace that underlies God's dealing with man in justification. R.C.H. Linsky says it is pure, abounding, astounding grace. It is grace that makes man right God. The method of justification, verses 24 and the first part of 25, Paul refers here to the instrumentality of redemption. The word redemption is really a beautiful word. It, in, the, in the Greek, it literally means a ransoming away. Not just a ransom. You know, a ransom is a price paid to set one free. But this word is literally a ransoming away, suggesting that we will never again come into slavery to sin. We are ransomed away. The gift of God is the grace offered in Jesus Christ that ransoms us away. The satisfaction 
was secured by the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for our sins. It is a penal substitution. He took our place. Paul is going to say later on in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. I said that was the picture in the Old Testament sacrifices. The wages of sin is death. Physical death, spiritual death, eternal death. To be separated from God forever. And the satisfaction of the divine holiness and its claims on man in judgment comes through the death of the representative of his people, the crucified Messiah, Jesus Christ. The means of appropriation of justification, verse 25, received by faith. The benefits of the death of Christ is received by faith alone. You believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins. You believe that he was buried and that God raised him from the dead on the third day. And you will be saved. The intention of justification is given next. Paul said it is, it is a righteousness for the past. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Notice that God has first place in the cross, not man. Jesus died on the cross primarily, first of all, to propitiate the holiness of God, to satisfy God's holiness. The past sins of man meant that Christ had to die. And I take this not as a reference to sins that believers committed before they come to Christ, but rather the sins of the Old Testament saints. All of those sacrifices made on those Jewish altars did not atone for sin. It was an act of faith that pointed to the one who would atone for sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. How was Abraham saved? By Jesus Christ. What about Moses? Jesus Christ. What about Isaiah? Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament saints are saved by Jesus Christ. No one is saved except by Jesus Christ, ever. Ever, ever. Jesus made that clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. The apostles made it clear. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no way of salvation except through Jesus Christ. The question that was undoubtedly on the lips of all of the Old Testament men and women, what, where are the wages of sin, is answered here. Here are the wages of sin. The death of Jesus Christ. Righteousness for the present. It was to show His righteousness in the present time. Jesus was set forth for the manifestation of God's righteousness in the present season. He died for the sins of the people in this time. The church age, we call it, from the ascension, from the death of Christ until now. 
It is righteousness for believer, for the believer. One of the great, great problems of theology is not how to get people to God, but how to get God to people. How can God remain just and let sinners into his heaven? If the wages of sin is death, or since the wages of sin is death, how can God be just if he lets me into his heaven? How can he be both just and the justifier? And the answer is given in the cross. Jesus Christ keeps that standard of perfection. He lives a perfect life. He was born a virgin. He was born without original sin lives a perfect life, and then dies in the place of sinners so that God doesn't ignore sin. It's dealt with. His wrath is poured out upon the substitute. The wrath that was due to me and to you is poured out upon Jesus Christ. He pays the wages of sin. He is forsaken by God. He dies. And so God can be both just and the justifier. In the cross of Christ, God is seen to be both righteous in His judgment and loving in His mercy. God is propitiated by reason of the death of Christ. You don't have to do anything except believe Him. Thank Him. And receive the gift of eternal life. It's a gift. It's a gift. Receive it. All barriers are removed in the cross. The cross exhibits the righteousness of God and yet also broadcasts his love. His redemption, one famous Bible teacher said, his redemption is not a pity that agrees to ignore sin but rather a power that cancels sin and sets us free from its dominion. I keep going back to the hymn by Edward Mote, but it seems so appropriate in, in this section of Romans. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean, on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. But now the righteousness of God is revealed. The justification by faith alone that comes through Christ alone. By the grace of God alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.